Just a heads up, this episode contains descriptions of violence. Welcome to the Urban Legends Hotline, where we investigate the mysterious tales of your hometowns and stories passed through the old lockered halls of your schools to get to the haunted heart of the urban legends that you grew up hearing and maybe even telling. Today we are covering Gang Initiations. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and from one friend of a friend to another, this is American Hysteria. Hi, Chelsea. This is Elizabeth. I was a teenager in Omaha, Nebraska in the 1990s. You know how when you're driving at night in the dark and the polite thing to do when you see another car who's forgotten to turn on their lights, the polite thing to do is to flash your headlights at them so they'll turn it on. Well, for some reason in Omaha in the 90s, there was this urban legend that if you were to flash your lights at night like this, that there was a gang initiation happening and that if you flashed your lights at another car, a gang member would have to shoot you. I don't know where this came from. I don't know the origin of this. It's really silly and I think in retrospect, fundamentally racist, but I was wondering if this might be a good topic for your urban legends shows. Thanks, bye-bye. In August of 1993, parents, school officials, newsrooms, fire stations, and police departments across America began receiving faxes on official-looking letterhead, warnings about a blood initiation weekend set for the 25th and 26th of September. Many took these warnings seriously and continued the chain, faxing and emailing these warnings out to everyone they knew, printing and sending them through the mail, even posting copies as flyers around town. The story went like this. Members of the gang, known as the Bloods, were planning to cruise dark highways with their headlights off, waiting for another driver to flash theirs as a courtesy. But these dark headlights were not an accidental oversight. No, this was a monstrous trap aimed at innocent good Samaritans in a sociopathic rite of passage called lights out. The prospective gang bangers would screech out a violent U-turn, follow the driver, and try to murder them, either by forcing them off the road or shooting them through their window, all so that they could land themselves a coveted spot in the local branch of a nationally organized, heartless, and bloodthirsty street gang. I remember this urban legend vividly, as it flashed up several times in the 1990s, and I had no reason to believe it wasn't true. After all, I was in elementary school, and teachers all over the country were warning kids like me that if we wore blue or red, we might be mistaken for a member of the Bloods or their rival gang, the Crips, maybe even shot to death right there in my quiet suburban neighborhood, all for this mistaken allegiance. I've been hoping for a while that someone would call into the Urban Legends hotline with this one, but I knew that when I finally dove into the history, there was going to be a whole lot of difficult stuff under the surface of this bogus but extremely potent piece of contemporary folklore, a tale that was most popular in the 80s and 90s, when stopping gang violence was one 
of the hottest political platforms. For this two-part series, we're not only going to cover the lights-out version of this tale, but many others as well. Your brutal bathroom attacks, your ankle slashers at the mall, your Halloween crip massacres, your trick babies left by the roadside. I'm going to take you on a long journey through old newspapers where we can find both reports attempting to debunk baseless panics, as well as many examples of real sensational crimes blamed on gang initiations that turned out to be anything but. We'll see how law enforcement worked to publicly quell the rumors that popped up again and again, while at the same time using them to explain random instances of violence, and sometimes even, along with politicians, to achieve harsh changes in local, state, and national laws that have had lasting and devastating effects on entire communities. We know that gang violence can affect random people who might be robbed or hit by stray bullets during drive-by shootings. And we know that gang initiations are very real, often involving being jumped in or beaten up to prove the wannabe's toughness. But our urban legend specifically claims that the victims are instead chosen at random as part of an organized intentional command, an innocent human sacrifice to the great god of the gang. Sometimes they're killers. A key man in a so-called juvenile gang. What's that guy waiting for? Get him a bomb. Yeah. Hit him again. I'll cut it out. We're getting a jam. What's the matter? You chicken or something? Come on, move it! What do you punk think you're doing anyway? What was that you called us? Well, I just bought that car. Now look. One of the first major national stories about this phenomenon called a gang initiation struck all the way back in March of 1935, when a group of working-class Irish immigrants calling themselves the Dripping Daggers frightened Bostonian drivers with their daring and dangerous antics. According to news stories printed all across America, these madcap hoodlums had participated in a gang initiation day that caused the tragic death of a World War I hero and injured his wife and infant son. In a flurry of car thefts, police said the initiates had sped through Boston at 80 miles an hour, a shocking speed, an entirely new speed for the 1930s. It was, as the story went, a risk that they had to take to become an official dripping dagger, and newspapers far and wide reported on three other injuries from related car accidents in, quote, smash-ups that marked the gang's orgy. Ultimately, after several arrests, two members in their late teens were arrested and sentenced to eight years in the Concord Reformatory. But after the initial dramatic police announcements and news reports, the gang initiation angle is abandoned completely and replaced with generalizations about the group stealing and racing cars, which they did a lot, causing more damage, injuries, and even deaths. But the ritual initiation narrative was already out there, soaked into the minds of those who read the early reports. So maybe, just 
maybe, despite the story being almost entirely lost to time, some essential elements manifested again in the blood initiation weekend panic 60 years later. The leaders of a gang creating a specific initiation date and rites of passage with members in their cars harming innocent bystanders. The dripping daggers became poster children for this new crime that was not only a financial nuisance, but presented a danger to the public. Authorities wanted to create a mandatory sentence of a felony for anyone stealing a car, which not only meant definite jail time for minors, but also a provision that allowed the police to shoot at cars and car thieves at their own discretion. They used the death of the World War I veteran as their main argument for these stiffer penalties, also admonishing judges for their leniency against these rats and thugs. But while many local politicians fought for an aggressive law and order approach, the local deputy superintendent of schools and members of the National Recreation Association attempted to convince the government of the need for constructive outlets for this youthful energy. In South Boston, where the Dripping Daggers members were likely living in poverty, there was a massive need for places like community centers, public gyms, workrooms, playrooms, social rooms, and opportunities for work that were very scarce during the Great Depression. It turns out that in 1920, there had actually been $350,000, that's $5.5 million in today's money, allocated for a public gym, procured by a social and athletic organization to help address the root causes of juvenile crime. But that gym was never constructed. Instead, the city appropriated those funds and spent it all on building a fancy new speedway, the very place where the dripping daggers would later hold their alleged initiations, or more accurately, where they raced around randomly in stolen cars. As we'll see in more detail in part two, this process of avoiding funding the root causes of gang crime and focusing on increasingly harsh punishments would return again as the gang initiation folklore took on a sensational life of its own, transforming, as many crime legends do, into lurid and prejudiced stories that a chronically outraged an anxious America always seems ready to believe. I know a place. I know a place. Where life is good. Where life is good. A brand new place. A brand new place. In your neighborhood. Your neighborhood. Come to my place. Where dreams come true. I said a place can save a lot of dollars for you. In the mid-1970s, in a cluster of towns in South Carolina, a shocking rumor began to take hold, the first version of our gang-initiation urban legend ever seen in print. In Anderson, stories were spreading that street gangs were performing a sick ritual to induct wannabes, instructing them to hide in department store bathrooms, in Kmarts specifically, and then castrating an unsupervised young boy. The Anderson Independent looked into these rumors and found that they had been told in each new town in the surrounding area as soon as a new Kmart opened up. According to the manager of the Anderson store, he had heard the same rumors going around for years about the Kmart in Charleston, in Charlotte, in Asheville, North Carolina, and Jackson, Tennessee. 
police had also gotten reports about at least three other locations that were allegedly part of this macabre gang initiation. Though it's difficult to understand why the legend specifically cited Kmart, that same manager claimed, without providing evidence, that it was some kind of conspiracy meant to deter locals from shopping at these new big box stores. It's less difficult to understand why the story was about harming a child in such a gruesome way, as this came at the beginning of both the movement against child abuse that put the issue in the national spotlight and the satanic ritual abuse scare that often involved sensational, unimaginable brutality against kids. The idea of what a gang was and what a gang looked like began to change by the late 1970s. Some of the most feared groups had been white motorcycle gangs, and folklorists have actually traced oral retellings of the Lights Out initiation as being first related to the Hells Angels. But as the decade rolled on, the two most well-known street gangs, the Crips and the Bloods, started to cement themselves in Los Angeles, as well as in the national consciousness. Street gang violence is not a new phenomenon. For lawless gangs of urban youth have been a fixture of life in our bigger cities for more than a century. Today, however, the gangs are a subject of growing national concern, for their influence is no longer confined to the central cities. With startling swiftness, the blight of gang violence has spread to outlying communities. Suburban, middle-class neighborhoods once thought to be comfortably far removed from this threat to life and property. Some have claimed that these groups emerged from the ashes of the Black Panther Party, a militant activist group who frightened much of white America with their uncompromising dedication to Black liberation, opportunity, and safety, as well as their open carrying of guns as a show of protection. However these street gangs were formed, the reality was that even after the civil rights movement in the decades prior, the black poverty level in LA was reaching 30% as opposed to 8% for white people. Places like the inner city neighborhoods of Los Angeles were full of young people trying to find a way to move up in the world, willing to sell drugs and protect their turf using violence against their rivals. We can see these mall bathroom rumors continue to grow larger and more explicit as the relatively racially progressive 1970s transformed into the far more racially charged conservative Reagan era 1980s. With the popularization of fax machines, the legend had a faster and farther way to travel aside from word of mouth. These warning faxes became far more explicit in their violent descriptions and racism. So be prepared for this next part. Quote, According to an eyewitness, the poor boy had been castrated by an ethnic gang of local youths. And subsequently, they found three little black boys walking through the store with a bloody penis in their pocket. As it turned out, they had cut the little white boy's penis off as an orientation, a method of getting into a gang they wanted to belong to. Of course, as far as we know, no such gang initiation has ever taken place. This is a product of the lurid American imagination. But as gang-related crimes did start to climb, usually only affecting other gang members or people who lived in the poverty-stricken urban areas where the gangs operated, the victim narrative continued to shift. 
Many who lived in more affluent areas became convinced that a gang member could strike at any moment as they were out picnicking on the lawn or walking to class, clutching their school books to their chests. This is the University of Southern California, standing proudly on the threshold of its second century. Proud of its independence, prepared for its future, accepting the challenge of private higher education. The University of Southern California, moving toward century two. In the fall of 1981, following an uptick in campus crime, stories began popping up about an initiation that involved gangs targeting young women, and the L.A. Times began a series of reports on a mass panic happening on the campus of the University of Southern California. The first article began like this. Unfounded rumors about a gang initiation rite, supposedly involving the rape and murder of USC students, have thrown the campus into what one security official said approached mass hysteria. The freakout began, reporters believed, when a well-liked business student from Norway was shot and killed off campus during a robbery, though I could find no information about the actual perpetrator of that crime. Soon the campus-wide conversation took a sensational turn. This was not just a random murder. No, this was part of a far more sophisticated plot by organized and cold-blooded thugs who saw these students as easy prey for their psychopathic rituals. Coeds, female faculty members, and wives of faculty were said to be targeted for rape and even murder. It was going around that members of the Latino Harpies and the Black 18th Street Gang were creeping in from the urban area of Los Angeles that was just 10 miles away, seeming to surround the affluent island of USC. The rumors continued to grow more and more dramatic. Now dozens of women had been raped, but when campus police looked into the handful of reports that did involve USC students, they found no evidence whatsoever that any of them were gang-related. On October 22nd, a student was kidnapped from a parking structure and sexually assaulted, but the perpetrator was not identified as a gang member. Another robbery and shooting did occur off campus, witnessed by two USC students, but it is not known who committed that offense. Still, students started breaking parking laws to get as close to their classes as possible and to avoid walking across campus, and many women, both students and staff, started to use escorts to protect them from becoming a target. USC President James H. Zumberg tried to set the record straight, creating what he called a rumor control center, with officers going door to door on frat and sorority rows to explain that there was no evidence whatsoever for the initiation tales being told. Trying to placate the concerned parents writing and calling in from all over the country, as well as the frightened students, the USC president also announced major changes to security on campus. More emergency phones were installed, 12 more security guards were hired, two more police canines were brought in, and there was even talk of the college forming their own private police force. As we'll see is often the case, these changes actually undermined the intended message that this was all just one big urban legend, and instead made it look like there was, indeed, something big to be afraid of. 
While talking to the LA Times, one USC drama major, appropriate, pointed to a conspiracy of silence on the part of the administration. Quote, I've heard a lot of things that it's not a rumor, that it is in fact true. It's infuriating that they're going to jeopardize our safety for the sake of keeping admissions up. But the only thing I've heard is through the grapevine. Ah, the only thing I've heard is through the grapevine. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. And now back to the show. The Crips and the Bloods no longer are exclusively a Los Angeles problem. For years, authorities there have charged them with selling crack cocaine and committing violence. But recently, the L.A. gangs have gone on the road. The Crips and the Bloods have traveled east to large and small cities, including Phoenix, Denver, and Omaha. Now let's fast forward a few years to February of 1987, when a series of alleged attacks by black youths wielding golf clubs shook the Denver area over a two-week period, with articles about the violence printed in almost every state. Fifteen crimes were grouped into what became known in the media as the golf club assaults. In one instance, a couple in their 20s was approached by five guys, one allegedly swinging a golf club who went on to steal the woman's purse. Two women were assaulted and robbed as they were getting into a car together. No golf club involved. A man walking his dog was said to have been beaten with a golf club and robbed. None of these victims were actually seriously injured, but a 53-year-old former actress named Harriet Lawyer Duvalo was murdered with a blunt object as she walked home carrying groceries. There were no witnesses to corroborate that the weapon was a golf club or who the perpetrators were, though police said they found golf clubs in the trunk of a nearby stolen car. The Denver police chief created a special task force of 70 officers dedicated to finding the suspects of the golf club assaults, which they claimed in interviews printed in newspapers all across the country were part of a new gang initiation. A few days later, the police announced that they had arrested four members of the Rolling 30 Crips gang, telling the media, quote, It's our understanding that to join the Crips, prospective members have to inflict injury. At one point, based on a tip, police raided a house and took eight people into custody, but only three were held at the station, with just one charged for his part in the assaults. 
Soon, news reports began showing doubt. Quote, Police retreated from initial comments that the suspects belonged to a notorious street gang called the Roland 30 Crips, which gained its name by crippling victims by beating them with canes and sticks. Of course, that's not how the Crips got their name. But anyway, the L.A. Times, in a much less prominently placed article than those that had blared on about the gang initiation angle, printed this two months after the attacks, after the panic had calmed down. Quote, In response to the golf club assaults, according to Denver police, some local residents started vigilante groups to track down potential invading Crips. Today, however, Denver officials say it appears there was no link at all between the attacks and Crip activity. Eventually, Denver County Deputy District Attorney Nate Chambers weighed in, telling the papers, quote, There's no evidence it was a gang initiation. The initial reports simply haven't checked out. No one arrested by police was charged with the murder of Harriet Lawyer Duvalo, a case that remains unsolved to this very day. We're shopping excitement brings a big smile. We've got the look, the taste, and the style. Just 24 hours before the conclusive evidence debunking the golf club gang initiation assaults was finally, if quietly, printed, a new rumor was already spreading in Jackson, Mississippi, at their Metro Center Mall. Calling back to the early iteration of our urban legend, those attacks on white boys in department store bathrooms. This time, the danger lurked just outside the mall, where white women were being preyed on by black youths in a rite that included sexual assaults and even murder. Despite police telling the media that there was no truth to these accusations, they nonetheless beefed up security at the Metro Center Mall to calm the consumer public. Two weeks after the local papers finally debunked the Jackson rumors, an editorial was printed by Grace Simmons, a staff writer at the Clarion Ledger, who opened with the statement, quote, For the past several months, from inside beauty parlors to street corners, such reports have been swarming like busy bees humming around a clover patch. According to the reports, black youths have been attacking white women at the Metro Center parking lot as part of a gang initiation. According to Grace Simmons, local gun stores had sold more handguns to local women than ever before. Eventually, the head of the police's youth gang unit chimed in, telling the newspaper, quote, the rumors have created a gang hysteria. Just a few months later, in August of 1989, the mall assault gang initiation took on a new, even more cinematic flavor. In this version, wannabe gang members were hiding underneath women's cars in the parking lot. And when they arrived back and started to unlock their doors, the initiate used a knife or razor blade to slash their ankles right at the Achilles tendon. At that point, they would pull the woman under the car to sexually assault her, murder her, or even cut off a piece of her flesh to bring back to the gang leaders as proof of their promised dedication. In a particularly memorable detail, many stories being passed around claimed that the assailants had not been caught because the pain of the slash was so great as to render the victim unable to scream. Pet Cemetery. 
Interestingly, the movie Pet Cemetery, based on the Stephen King novel of the same name, came out in April of 1989, just four months before the papers printed information about the urban legend eventually dubbed the Ankle Slasher. The film features a graphic scene in which an evil child brought back from the dead saws through the Achilles tendon of a helpful neighbor. Though he is hidden under the bed instead of under a car at the mall, the fact that this movie premiered in theaters so close to the start of this specific rumor seems worth mentioning. Whatever the catalyst was that helped materialize this new version, police stations and newsrooms were flooded with calls from concerned citizens, many angry that they had not publicly called attention to the rash of ankle slashings that were now taking place in other towns and cities too, especially at the Tacoma Mall in Washington state. When local law enforcement attempted to follow this rumor back to its beginning point, they found one of their own, a Pierce County Sheriff's deputy who also taught a self-defense course open to the public. Turns out that the deputy had been told the tale by one of his students, who said she knew someone who had actually been ankle-slashed at the Tacoma Mall. The deputy said that he had indeed repeated the story to the majority of his 1,100 students, who repeated it to their friends and family, who repeated it to theirs, and so the legend goes and goes. In the same month, a similar rumor of gang initiates hiding under cars rocked the Indianapolis Greenwood Mall. Police traced this rumor to a teenage girl who said she'd overheard a mall security guard talking about one such case. She said she had just told a few friends, but eventually the rumor reached an employee of the Indiana Bell Telephone Company, where it turned from a whisper to a bulletin, which the worker entered into the computer system to send to a friend. But the system was available to all employees of Indiana Bell, and the official-looking bulletin spread out and reached the town of Greenwood, where the mall was located. Though it was debunked on the Indiana Bell system the very next day, all it took was 24 hours for the tale to take on a life of its own. Soon, the exact same story was circulating in Lincoln and Omaha, Nebraska, when the Lincoln Star Journal received a mysterious flyer in the mail with no return address. Police, who continued to attempt to debunk the rumor, said they were getting up to 50 calls a day, begging them to finally intervene in this regional terror campaign that, of course, had absolutely no evidence to back it up. Jacksonville, the bold new city of the South, with one bold problem. A couple years later, in the summer and fall of 1992, another spate of mysterious violence broke out in Jacksonville, Florida, on a popular stretch of highway frequented by tourists on the way into the city. What were dubbed the I-295 sniper attacks became huge national news, with police telling the New York Times that they had recorded five shootings for moving vehicles, 15 shootings from overpasses, 15 cases of concrete rocks or bricks thrown at vehicles, and one instance where shooting and concrete throwing were combined. It was 4.30 p.m. on February 15th, near the middle-class suburb of Orange Park, when someone reported a gunshot on I-295. Then, a month later, in mid-March, it was reported that a large chunk of concrete had been thrown from a nearby overpass, just one exit away from where that gunshot had occurred. 
Throughout the month of July, police announced that there had been five reports of gunfire between vehicles on the highway and 11 reports of concrete dropped from overpasses, as well as one report from someone who claimed that they had been fired on by a sniper. In one of two tragic incidents connected to the crimes, a car was hit with a piece of concrete, causing it to crash into a wooded area on the side of the highway, killing the driver. A woman was severely injured when she was hit by a bullet in her jaw, fired from a car full of young men who drove up beside her. No other victims were ever listed in the news, despite the 120 reports police took down during this Florida panic, most of them remaining unsubstantiated. Throughout November, news reports said that police suspected a gang initiation to be the cause of this violence. And those words, gang initiation, were printed again and again in almost every state, often in the bolded headline. The Marion Star in Marion, Ohio, wrote, Motorist attacks, gang initiation, the Tucson citizen in Tucson, Arizona, wrote, Two teens held in highway attacks. Crimes may be gang initiations. The Hawaii Tribune Herald in Hilo, Hawaii, wrote, Were freeway snipings gang initiations? And the Iola Register in Iola, Kansas, wrote, Gang initiation may have led to attack. In several articles, Duval County Sheriff Jim McMillan is quoted as saying, We've been getting information from both the public and others, leading us to at least look at and investigate youth groups that have been in operation. Among those gangs mentioned are the English Estates Posse, Nation of Chaos, Dogjaw Posse, and Teen Les Miserables. The American Automobile Association, AAA, put out a national advisory to all of its members, encouraging them to avoid the highway altogether. The NBC Nightly News dubbed it the Highway of Death. Florida's Welcome Center was advising anyone who stopped there to take a different route into the city. An employee was quoted as saying, I heard one man tell me that he heard that they drive up behind you, hit your bumper, and then when you get out of the car, they hit you over the head. Eventually, the police requested help from the National Guard, who sent 150 agents armed with M-16s to patrol the area with night vision goggles, flanked by camouflage vehicles and helicopters. In addition, the Florida Department of Transportation erected 10-foot-high fences on the overpasses to prevent people from dropping objects onto vehicles or shooting from above. Police eventually rounded up 20 members of the alleged English Estates Posse, though only a handful would come to face any legal action. Four teenagers would be charged with throwing a deadly missile when they pelted a school bus with rocks, though reports do not clarify if they were thrown from an overpass or just on a side street near the interstate. Two of the others were charged with attempted murder, said to have been the ones who shot at the woman driving on I-295 from a stolen car. Authorities were attempting to charge the 15- and 16-year-old English Estates Posse members as adults when the charges were suddenly dropped for lack of evidence and never picked up again. Two others were charged with car theft, and police claimed that though they were not official members of the English estate's posse, they were each associated with the gang. A story printed in newspapers across the country said that, quote, Although police have recovered more than a dozen weapons, none have been linked to the shooting. According to the report, police, quote, Displayed a pellet gun and several toy weapons officers obtained during the arrest of the 16-year-old. 
Sheriff Jim McMillan was still confident, quote, While those arrested do not directly involve the I-295 incidents, we feel confident that the arrest of these individuals has significantly reduced the probability of reoccurrence. Police and the National Guard claimed victory when the incidents suddenly seemed to come to a halt. But I have to wonder if the 10-foot walls they erected across the highway of death might have been what stopped the assaults, along with the constant presence of heavily armed authorities and the massive amount of national attention. Because the truth is that the charges were all eventually dropped against the English estate's posse members, and all of the I-295 crimes remain unsolved to this day. Just a month before I-295 was dubbed the Highway of Death, another crime across the country, also blamed on a gang initiation, was shaking Stockton, California. It was the night of September 18th, and 29-year-old school secretary Kelly Freed was sitting in the passenger seat of a car driven by her friend Will Fitz when a vehicle pulled up behind them without its headlights on. Will stuck his hand out the window and gestured for the car to turn them on, and that's when the other vehicle started following them aggressively. One of the two Latino youths that were eventually charged with this crime pulled out a gun and shot at the back of Kelly's car, the bullet breaking through the taillight, cutting through the passenger seat, and fatally wounding her on the left side of her back. Though police and newspapers called this a gang initiation, the shooter said that he took Will's gesture as a sign of personal disrespect and claimed that he shot the car not to murder the occupants, but to scare them. And the fact that the bullet passed through the taillight and into Kelly's back was a horrific accident. But of course, we can't know if that was the truth. What we do know is that the shooter was just 16 years old and his accomplice, 15, and neither were members of any gang nor participating in any kind of initiation, as later confirmed by police. We were driving around, we were loaded. From his tiny cell at the California Youth Authority, Carlos Ojeda, the kid who at age 13 showed the most promise, now discusses his role in one of Stockton's most notorious crimes, the killing of 29-year-old Kelly Freed. They put their little hands up, say, turn your headlights, you know, trying to help us out, and we took it in a disrespectful manner, and we more or less chased them down, and we shot the car, we shot one single time, and hit the back of the car, and, and it hit our victim, Miss Kelly Freed, and it killed her. Though he tried to escape the violence, Ojeda says it was... The imagery provided by this story, a car of young gangbangers coming after a white school employee in the prime of her life, fit a national narrative that already existed. The local papers reported the story this way. From the freeway to the funeral home, one sees the side of Stockton any city likes to present to the world. Quiet, tree-lined streets lined by tidy, single-family homes. The perception is of a modest yet comfortable community at peace with itself. This was Kelly Freed's Stockton. The funeral home where hundreds have come to pay last respects is near downtown, a demarcation point between her world and the less scenic, harder-edged areas where peace has been lost to gangs and crime and drugs. The two cultures clashed last Friday night, and Kelly Freed, 29, was a casualty. More after this. And now, back to the show. Several folklorists, including urban legend patron saint Jan Brunvond and Snopes co-creator Barbara Mickelson, pointed to this misunderstood event as a likely catalyst for the big lights-out panic of 1993. 
So many of the elements are there, the flashing headlights, the car following the good Samaritan, and a murder by boys assumed to be gang members that I think this event has to have informed the urban legend in some way. But I would also like to look at some major events that were playing out on a far bigger stage than the hyper-local story of Kelly Freed's untimely death. In the spring of 1992, a few months before her death, the Rodney King riots exploded across Los Angeles after a black man was severely beaten by white police officers in footage shown across news channels all over the country. The four officers charged with excessive force were eventually acquitted after a very public trial, and the six days following became the most destructive period of localized unrest in U.S. history. Just Days before the riots, on April 28, 1992, leaders of various factions of the Crips and the Bloods participated in what was called the Watts Truce. They signed an official peace treaty to join the L.A. Black community together to end the very real gang violence and murder that continued to harm their neighborhoods. The truce has lasted now for three weeks. Members of the two main rival gang factions, the Crips and the Bloods, now attend frequent parties together. Where there had been an average of two gang-related killings a day, authorities confirmed that the killings by black gangs have stopped. Well, it was like, well, hey, we got to do this. No longer should we shed our own blood on, this, on these streets because it's endless and senseless murders. It doesn't make no sense. Our main priority was to stop the killing because that was the most harmful thing that came out of gangs. The individual gang members continue to commit crime. There was, in fact, a noteworthy drop in L.A. gang violence following this truce, and it was replicated in many cities across the country and is now considered one of the reasons for a drop in violent crime throughout the 90s and 2000s. But the majority of law enforcement weren't keen to give credit to the gangs that they had been fighting, and some claimed that the Bloods and the Crips were joining forces not to create peace, but rather to plan a war on police, though they provided no evidence for this aside from their anonymous informants. By this point, as we'll discuss at length in part two of our series, the stories of inner city terror boosted the law and order talking points that had long benefited the campaigns of politicians and district attorneys, the funding of police departments, and the bottom line of fear-baiting media. Right after the Crips and Bloods held this summit, one homicide detective told reporters a new version of the story. Quote, It's not as if the truce means that the gang members have found God or suddenly seen the light. They are just as violent, but they have shifted their activities away from each other and toward the community. All of this was also taking place a few months before the presidential election between George Bush Sr. and Bill Clinton. They're a new generation of Democrats, Bill Clinton and Al Gore, and they don't think the way the old Democratic Party did. They've called for an end to welfare as we know it, so welfare can be a second chance, not a way of life. They've sent a strong signal to criminals by supporting the death penalty. Clinton-Gore, for people, for a change. It had been 12 years since a Democrat had held the highest office in the nation, and the party had started to realize that the Republican election strategy that seemed most effective was their aggressive law and order rhetoric and policies. Many establishment Democrats believed it was time to get tough on crime and stay tough on crime. It was time for a showdown to see who was willing to go the furthest to punish the American evildoers. 
Bill Clinton, who was referred to sometimes as America's first black president, was relatively popular with black leaders, and his party was well aware that the greater black community was probably not going to vote for George Bush Sr. Confident that he already had the black vote, Clinton needed a way to prove to white centrist voters that regardless of this, he would not be a puppet for the radical black agenda. In an extremely well-publicized exchange between the future president and controversial black figure Jesse Jackson, Clinton shamed him for allowing Sister Soldier, an activist, rapper, and former member of Public Enemy, to speak as part of what Jackson dubbed his Rainbow Coalition panel, pointing out her inflammatory rhetoric that had recently been printed in the Washington Post. Let's listen. You had a, a rap singer here last night named Sister Soldier. I defend her right to express herself through music, but her comments before and after Los Angeles were filled with the kind of hatred that you do not honor today and tonight. Just listen to this, what she said. She told the Washington Post about a month ago, and I quote, if black people kill black people every day, why not have a week and kill white people? So you're a gang member and you'd normally kill somebody? Why not kill a white person? Last year she said, you can't call me or any black person anywhere in the world a racist. We don't have the power to do to white people what white people have done to us. And even if we did, we don't have that low down dirty nature. If there are any good white people, I haven't met them. Where are they? Right here in this room. That's where they are. While Sister Soldier maintained that these statements were taken out of context, Clinton put these words in any American household paying attention to the landmark election. These comments certainly made a lot of Americans upset. Those who had just witnessed on their televisions a fiery uprising against police violence they didn't understand, and who had been inundated with sensational media stories and political speeches about gang violence, drugs, and juvenile crime, who perhaps had heard, too, legends about random innocent people just like them, targeted in bloody, heartless initiation rituals. I think that this could have all contributed to a sense that each and every good Samaritan was in grave danger, a target anytime, any place, even deep in the safety of the American suburbs and the good small towns where things like this just don't happen. Newspaper mentions of gang initiations doubled in 1992 and then doubled again in 1993 when the lights out rumor burned through the nation, city by city, town by town, house by house, fax by fax, email by email, and whisper by whisper all while authorities began a crackdown on street gangs that transformed the criminal justice system in the name of so-called law and order. And that's where we'll pick up for part two of this Urban Legends hotline on gang initiations. This was American Hysteria. We'd love it if you'd leave us a message on our Urban Legends hotline about a tale that you remember from growing up. You can find that at AmericanHysteria.com. And while you're there, you could check out our merch as well. 
If you'd like to get more of our show, you can head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria or subscribe on Apple Plus. You'll get ad-free episodes as well as bonus content, like the talk show that I do with our producer Miranda called Hysteria Home Companion, where we tell you stories left out from the episodes and tell you our personal feelings about the topics. And sometimes we'll tell you a story that has has nothing to do with anything, but we know that you'll love. So if that sounds up your alley and you'd like to support our show, just go to patreon.com slash American Hysteria or subscribe on Apple Plus. You can follow us on Instagram at American Hysteria Podcast. And if you have time to leave us a review on the app of your choosing, it really helps us out. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Our associate producer and sound designer is Riley Swedelius-Smith. Our producer is Miranda Zickler. And our voice actor is Will Rogers. Thanks, as always, for listening. And I encourage you, despite the rumors, to try to be a good Samaritan. Have a great week. 